0: Welcome to another exciting episode of Fishing Without Bait, a lifetime without definitive expectations. And for those of you who've been following the show, perhaps you've noticed that our focus has shifted a bit into the real and the raw. What we always talked about is challenging people to do something with their life. We've talked about people who go into life and grab something and make something out of it not only for themselves but for others to develop the message that's within them to carry and illuminate others the best thing in life is to make others people's life more beneficial and more happy and as most of you know we follow the holistic wellness model where we talk about mind body and spirit and we make no apologies for insisting that a spiritual connection is an essential foundation for wellness and for those of you who may not know, our logo, our butterfly, when we talk about that, we talk about the beginning of Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, where it's filmed in black and white, all the troubles that she went through, the time of struggles, the long, hard crawl she had out of that place, signified by the tornado landing in Oz, opening up into a world of technicolor. And today we're going to be sharing an experience with Imam Hazma, who has agreed to share his story, his struggle. Out of that dark place into a world of technicolor and light uh welcome, welcome Imam thank you brother Jim, for having me as most of us have had, most of the people know my origin story of the my dealings with the, the long term drug and alcohol addiction, an encounter with the divine the twelve step world, and uh really uh, devoting my life into using whatever gifts i've been given to uh to help others and you have a incredibly interesting story yourself. <laughs>
1: I think so, <laughs> according to my mother.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, mama's know best. So could you share with us a little bit us about your background and your metamorphosis into the guy that's sitting beside me today?
1: My family, we're from Puerto Rico, um, from an area called San Tonse and Moca, Puerto Rico. Then my family moved into another area called Isandia. And then with the mass migration into New York City, uh, my mother and father were raised in New York City and that's where I was born and uh through the birth of hip hop and all these things that came about in the late 70s and 80s and then I moved back to Puerto Rico and then I uh landed in Worcester Massachusetts
0: that's uh, that was quite a that was quite a tale you were born on Valentine's Day i understand yes
1: my grandmother they, uh, my mother went back and forth about naming me Valentino. <laughs> so I wanted to have, have a serious nickname, maybe Big Tino or something.
0: <laughs> Could you share with us that story about being at the, uh, at the beauty salon
1: with your mother? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, my mom and my dad, my mom, they would always say, me, you're going to be this great lover, you're going to be this big lover, you're born on Valentine's Day. So I started trying to investigate, hey, what do lovers do? Uh, Back then, HBO was just one box. It was like an HBO box. So my father, he would say, you know, it's time to go to sleep. He'll give me a wink, and I know what that meant, that once my brother goes to sleep, I can get back up because I didn't go to school. And so we'd watch stuff that I wasn't supposed to be watching and, you know, some rated-R movies. I said, okay, this must be what lovers do. So I had a plan to get a woman. I didn't know how I was going to get a woman, but I wanted to get a woman. I think I was, at this time, maybe I was like five years old. And so my mom went to a beauty salon. There was this beautiful woman there. And I said, okay, here's my chance to be a lover, but there's no chance she's going to talk to me because my father said that real men have hair on their chest. So I thought, how the heck can I get hair on my chest at this moment in time? So I looked and I saw the scissors snip on my mother's hair and some hair fall down. And I said, bingo. So I went and I faked like I was going to ask my mother a question. I snatched up a handful of hair. And I went to the bathroom and I stuffed it in my shirt so it can emerge out the top of my collar. (laughs) So then I said, here we go. I'm going to bust my move, man. Now it's time to get this Valentino stuff on. So I sat next to the woman. I put my elbow on the armrest and I looked at her like, what's up? Don't you see these hairs emerging up my shirt? And I felt what I thought was the breeze of love, but it was the small hand of a Puerto Rican woman smacking me in my face. It was my mother.
0: <laughs> you, uh, I, I love that term that you used, the Puerto Rican breeze. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the hairs didn't itch me until my mother smacked me. That's when the hairs began to itch.
0: <laughs> so what you showed was a creative, imaginative, uh, focused uh, type of individual from an early age.
1: What it shows is that be careful what you tell your kids, because now I got, uh, you know, born on Valentine's Day, I got eight kids now. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) So you tell your kid you're going to be a lover, you know, that stuff might might affect them, you know.
0: So you grew up in an environment, and what we often do, Imam, we talk about uh, individuals, and we challenge people to be like uh, gardeners. And they're the flower. And we often challenge people that... That flowers in a garden don't compare themselves to other flowers; they just bloom. So the idea is that a flower needs water, it needs sunlight, and it needs soil. So when we talk about soil, we talk about the environment that an individual surrounds themselves with and grows up with. So you could tell us a little. Could you tell us a little bit about that
1: environment? Basically, for the most part of my life, I grew up in these housing projects called Plumlee Village in an area called Worcester, Massachusetts. And it was very rough. You know, it was very rough living. I mean, it was a great time to grow up. This is when kids were kids. We played outside. We did things. We got into a lot of trouble. Um, Parents were never around because they were busy working. But I also got into trouble at an early age. I remember I passed the sixth grade with four Fs. And my teacher wrote a letter to my mother, like, you know, why she still passed me. And I said, you know what? I'm gonna teach this teacher a lesson. I rolled a huge joint out of her letter filled with catnip, like a Cheech and Chong type joint. (laughs) And I just, my mom was at work. I said, I'm gonna smoke this bad boy right in the bathroom. I just lit it up, start toking away right in the bathroom and boom, that breeze came again. It was my mom (laughs) kicking down the door and she caught me smoking my warning letter from the teacher. And so that began a whole process of me getting in trouble without where, I, where I, I wanted to begin to taste some of the things that were in my environment that I saw people getting high, people hanging out on the streets. And that was my beginning process to, uh, to that uh, lifestyle I was in the sixth grade.
0: In the sixth grade. Your mother sounds like a formidable individual.
1: Oh, my, my mom. God bless her. And she's amazing. She's a tough woman. She worked so hard her whole life. She's retiring this year. Dental technician, you know. So many years she put in since the 80s, you know, she tried, she did her best to raise us.
0: So all the experiences that you've had in the past make you an effective youth minister, I would suspect.
1: I can say so. You know, I've I've tasted some things, you know, that some of the youth are going through, even though this youth culture changes so much, I believe it changes probably every six months or so. And so, but, you know, having tasted some of these things that... Maybe their parents haven't tasted or some other cultures. It allows me sometimes to relate to them, maybe the way their parents can.
0: Well, Imam, what I try to, and there are parents who bring their children to me because when they read about my background, they figure, well, this guy's for real. And maybe he can straighten my son or daughter out. Well, there's a difference between tough, Imam, and being strong.
1: No doubt. No doubt. I think sometimes we we, we apply the wrong remedies. You know, we think sometimes being strong all the time with boys. Sometimes males, they haven't, just haven't received no love. You know, I see some boys and their parents bring them to me and they think I'm going to be strong with their boys and yell at them. Sometimes, you know, uh, God is my witness. I just give them a hug. And I just sit with them. And sometimes they don't need that. You know, sometimes they go through all this trying to mold themselves as young men. And sometimes they they, they just need a little bit of love, you know. It's not always, you know, you have to know when to apply what kind of remedy. It's not a black and white type of thing.
0: And that comes from experience.
1: I I believe so.
0: And that comes from someone looking at you, knowing that you do what you say, and you say what you do, and you know what you're talking about. You didn't read these things out of a book.
1: Yeah, I think the best knowledge, uh, sometimes the scholars say, is knowledge of taste. Someone who actually tasted these things.
0: Indeed. Sometimes when I sit across from people and I know that they're, let's just say, they're massaging the truth, I'll, uh, I'll say to them, I say, let's just hold on for a second and say, who do you think you're sitting in the room with?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that happens.
0: So how much do you share with the, uh, the individuals, the youth that you work with, Imam?
1: It all depends. Some youth, they're not even ready to hear some of this stuff. You know? mm-hmm. So I think, you know, dealing with human beings, we're very complex, and there's not one approach to everybody. And so when I deal with youth, I deal with them on an individual basis, and my main core objective is to establish a relationship with them.
0: So tell us about establishing a relationship.
1: Yeah, I mean, sometimes we're too forceful. We're trying to force relationships with youth. I come, I let them hang out. I don't force anything on them. I'm there if they want to speak to me. If they want to speak to me, we talk. I take them places without ever trying to push religion or anything on them.
0: So what you're telling me is begging, screaming, crying, yelling,
1: threatening. doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. Nah, it, doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. I mean, people, when we have to do something, there's only so long that will last. We have to do things because we love it. When we love it, then we do it wholeheartedly.
0: So in a 12-step world, what we talk about, Imam, is sharing our experience, strength, and hope with others, sharing what works in our life with them. And if they care to pick up on any of that and modeling behavior. Talk to us about modeling behavior, Imam.
1: Well, for us as Muslims, the best model that we use for modeling behavior is Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and his companions. He had companions who were alcoholics. He had companions who were who were who were thieves at one point. He didn't just have like goody two shoes around him. He transformed people who had some serious issues. And so Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he taught us that. To, to be careful how we judge people to be careful because we don't know that the how somebody will end how their life will end maybe someone who had a difficult life they, they 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 may change their life at the end and someone who lived a good life they may become corrupt at the end some of the most arrogant people are religious people so you have to be careful you don't know who's who uh, a, a a big sinner could be a great believer
0: so much like the Bible's Jesus, who did not surround himself with the elite, the rich, and the powerful, he surrounded himself with people who uh, perhaps he was cast by his association.
1: Exactly, exactly. There were people who the Arabs looked down upon. Some of them were Africans, women, and so on. You know, so And, and he had some elite with him as well, but it was this lifting up of the people who were looked down upon. Was one of uh, the main uh, beautiful things that I love about Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him.
0: One of the things about your particular journey is when you were in uh, Massachusetts, Worcester. You were talking about this uh, housing project that was, uh, let's just say, not a place where beautiful flowers would bloom. uh, But you, but you bloomed nonetheless.
1: I mean, the, the projects. You know, it was a rough place, but there were lots of beautiful people in there it was a time when youth still respected the elders. Uh, Don't get me wrong, there were video games. You know, Nintendo was out, Sega Vision was out, but youth still played in the streets. Youth still respected the elders. If you saw an old woman, you still carried her bags. Uh, So it was a combination of a rough upbringing but still seeing these old-school models of how people used to be.
0: When we talk about people, when we talk about forming themselves, what we often talk about is helping people connect with their authentic self. As most of the time, their voice, they're listening to this inner critic that came from other folks in their life. And I consider the inner critic to be like a politician. If you tell a lie loud enough and long enough, soon people will begin to believe it. Okay. And I often challenge people to find the sound of their own voice and and whose voice that is and quite often what that involves is ego deflation and checking ego and you speak about that in one of your videos
1: yes i mean that's one of the biggest things in islam uh is the the transformation or the purification of the heart is what is called uh which is called to some people call it sufism it's to polish uh what we have inside of us to to work on our ego and our, and our corrupt passions and our spiritual diseases like jealousy, envy, arrogance, conceit, love of leadership, love of attention, all these type of things. And so we can remove this and so we can have a relationship with the creator.
0: There was a uh, there's a uh, Christian monk. He's passed away now, Thomas Merton, famous guy, and uh, he could trace all the evils in the world to three things, greed, lust and self-love. It's no joke. Mm-hmm. It's no joke. Obviously, you've had a lot of exotic adventures, and uh, and so have I. However, is what's important is that we're right here and it's right now. So, could you tell us a little bit about tell us a little bit about your moment of clarity, Imam? Uh,
1: you know, I had did so many things trying to taste happiness. I was smoking lots of weed, getting high, partying, drinking, shopping. You know, all these type of things. A lot of money was coming in from living the street life. And none of it was quenching my thirst. None of it was really, I never felt really happy. And uh, growing up with a Catholic background, I always had this sense of, you know, thinking about God. As a matter of fact, I used to go to a church sometimes to escape the block where I lived, and I used to sit on the steps and roll some weed and smoke some weed in the steps of the church and just talk to God. And I knew I was searching for something. And then a friend of mine, named Louis, uh, his name his name now is Luqman, he became Muslim. And he, he looked co- like a completely transformed human being. Like he finally tasted what real happiness was. And just one look at him uh, and the shake that he brought, I knew that something big in my life was going to happen and I became Muslim.
0: So he had something that you wanted.
1: Actually, yeah. I mean, first, it started off with a ride. He picked me up. I was going to go buy some blunts to smoke some weed. And he was listening to the quran and i was like oh snap that sounds so amazing i used to like smoke weed to like uh (laughs) spiritual stuff like indian flutes i felt like it got me more high you know (laughs) so but when i heard the quran i was like dude i got to smoke to this and i just ejected the cassette it was a yellow cassette and i went home and i I, and i said man get ready man i was of getting my weed ready you know i had it all broken up and put the cassette on And the Quran sounded so amazing to me. And it was my first time listening to the Quran that really planted the seed for me.
0: So tell us about your deflation of ego that allowed you to listen to the divine, to listen to Allah rather than talk at
1: Allah. Well, my ego is still huge, man. (laughs) There's no deflation. (laughs) There's no deflation. This thing is like, you know, empire state building stuff, man. I mean, uh, so I'm still at war with my ego, still war with myself. And. Um, it's a constant process, so I, I don't think I'm there yet.
0: Well, in the 12-step
1: world, always we uh, our
0: self-will and our self-control can take over the wheel at any time.
1: No doubt. In Islam, we actually feel that the ego is even worse than Satan, because Satan is the enemy that's on the outside. The ego is the enemy inside the walls. and So it's far worse than, than Satan.
0: Term it a dysregulated thinker who's always talking to you, however, most of all, what it tells is lies.
1: No doubt, no doubt. In, in Islam, this science is broken down to how to find out what thoughts in your mind are from your ego, what thoughts uh, are from uh, the creator, what thoughts may come from the angels, and what thoughts can actually come from demons.
0: Tell us about the process of you becoming honest with yourself and recognizing your character defects.
1: You know, it's, uh, to, uh, I began to study Islam in West Africa. To West African manuscripts, and they dealt with a lot of dealing with the ego and the transformation of the heart. And when I began to study the diseases of the heart, I realized that I had all of them, and uh, and it began. I became very concerned and sitting with my sheikh, and I'm still working on them to this day.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about the toxicity that builds up inside of individuals, and let's the, and their soul becomes poisoned, Imam?
1: Yeah, I mean, the if someone is committing a sin. Like someone is out in the streets doing drugs, they know that they're doing drugs. But when someone is living a so-called righteous life and they're using religion and their position for corruption, for self-interest and so on, it's worse than the person who's on the street. Because the person on the street, they know they're wrong. But when someone is using religion as, as their drug, you know, as their corruption, it's way more dangerous because they don't see the wrong that they're doing. So this is what the, the big danger about the ego and you know and, and the and the corrupt passions.
0: So when we talk about ego, Imam, what we often talk about is I help people challenge themselves to positive self talk, and to make friends with themselves, as they are the best therapist that they'll have. How do you, how do you handle that with young people?
1: Um, well, we believe that this develops in the body at the age of two. You'll see children start saying, "Mine, it's mine, it's mine." Then next, thing you know, they want the room to be theirs, then the whole, you know, realm to be theirs. And so, uh, children in Islam are innocent uh, till they reach the age of puberty. Even if they, no matter what religion they are, we believe that they're innocent. If they were to pass away, then not, you know God is the most merciful. So, but when they reach this age of puberty. That's when you have to be like, kind of like a master of analyzing them and how to negotiate with them on top of negotiating with their ego. And
0: negotiating with ego, now there's a term. Now I have, now, I have a two year old and a four year old uh, grandchildren, so I have a fair idea of uh, the mind, the mind and the no concept. So uh, you have a number of children yourself, you mom? Yes, I have eight kids. Wow. Okay. Your house must be interesting in the morning. I'm
1: like a diving board, man. They jump all over me, you know, and uh, I have to negotiate with fried chicken and treats and juice. And that's how I make it around. My wife gets mad at me, you know, but uh, that's how I I try to position myself.
0: Please check out our website at fishingwithoutbait.com, where you can listen to the show, comment on our discussions, and find out where you can subscribe to our podcast.